Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you, any questions that you might have for our guests. What I would tell you, I learned from my kids, and I say this often when I go to speak, kids shouldn't be afraid to tell their parents the truth. I think that you've got to have truth tellers in your life. I think you've got to have accountability partners. I think you've got to truly have people if they love you. And again, I would say there's a way you have to go about doing it. I don't know if it can be harsh. Like that day when my kids set me down, I do remember that I thought they were lovely, loving in the way they said it. They'd kind of be in a real harsh way. I'm not sure how I would have responded to that. But I think that young people need to, sometimes they see it, you know, uh, you know, God talks about the, have the faith of a child. And I think sometimes kids can help their parents by telling them the truth. Thanks everyone for coming back to the Faith Driven Athlete podcast. Today's guest is one of the greatest basketball coaches in UT history. And I know what's going on right now. UT, the Longhorns are saying that's us. And the volunteers are saying, that's us. Well, yes, we're talking about both of you, the University of Texas and the University of Tennessee. Rick Barnes took the University of Texas to the NCAA tournament in 16 out of his 17 seasons as their head coach. And as the current coach for Tennessee, he's a recent recipient of the Naismith College Coach of the Year and one of the top 30 winningness coaches of all time. We talked to him about all of this, but he took us one layer deeper to the faith in God that forms the foundation of all he does and how his kids calling him out was a pivotal moment in their family's journey. We think you'll love our conversation with Coach Rick Barnes. Coach, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's good to be with you guys. Well, we'd love to start by getting a picture of your life on the court and off the court. So let's start with the latter. Can you tell us a bit about your personal background, who you are, your family, where you come from? Well, I grew up in Hickory, North Carolina, which is on the other side of the mountains from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And I grew up in a family of five in a small town of Hickory. Um, at one time, it was a furniture capital, a lot of hosiery, a lot of industrial going on there. And I love Hickory. I really do. I went to high school there, Hickory High School, went to Lenore Ryan College there in my hometown. And uh, as I said, I grew up with three brothers and a sister. I lost my sister in a car accident when she was 18 years old, which was a very tough time for our family, as you can imagine. Uh, a lot of Thoughts come to your mind even now as I think back to that day that uh, the last time I saw her and uh, mm. from, you know, there growing up, I love my childhood. I really did. Uh, wasn't very much of a student, uh, did not enjoy school at all. Just wanted to do everything I could to get out of school so I could play. I uh, love sports. Grew up in an era where the Yankees were on TV every weekend. Grew up in the part of NASCAR country and grew up a big NASCAR fan as well. But uh, Who's your favorite driver? Uh, growing up, my favorite driver probably would have been, uh, I kind of went back and forth between David Pearson. I don't know yeah. why I like Richard Petty some too. Uh, yeah. But uh, later on, Dale Earnhardt became the guy I loved. Uh, I still watch it, uh, to be quite honest with you. And if our team were playing for the national championship and my brothers had a chance to come watch us play for the national championship or 
go to a NASCAR race, they're going to the NASCAR race. <laughs> and, uh, but I loved Hickory. And while I was there too, I ended up marrying my wife now, what, 43 years, 44 years. Uh, I worked for her dad while I was going through college and she and I knew each other growing up. I got married my senior year in college and, uh, my grades got a lot better in my senior year because of her. And without her being in my life and God bringing us together, I don't think any of what we've done together would have happened because she was the one that we had a chance to go to the ACC tournament one year. A friend helped me really get into coaching. He invited Candy and I to go, and we walked out of the Greensboro Coliseum. I said to her, boy, I'd love to be able to get into college coaching. She said, what do we have to do? I said, I don't know. We started asking questions. We wrote letters. I drove around the state of North Carolina trying to figure out how to get into college coaching. And a buddy of mine sent me up to Appalachian State where Bobby Crimmins and Kevin Cantwell were the coaches. And mm-hmm. they both told me that, hey, you can volunteer. That's probably the route you're going to have to take. And I ended up going to Davidson College for a year as a volunteer coach, and which at that time, I think back, you know, Bob McKelp was on that staff, who's now the head coach at Davidson, and Jeff Buzdelic, who has spent a lot of time in both the NBA and college basketball. Eddie Biedenbach was the head coach. and God's blessed me in so many different ways, and uh, I love my childhood. I'll be quite honest with you. I loved growing up. Uh, I was kind of free, and I just kind of went from day to day and loved being outside, uh, and I still love Hickory, but uh, God's blessed us in so many ways, and uh, and I'm thankful for that, obviously. Was faith part of your family story growing up? You know, it was. Uh, my mother and father divorced when I was too young to remember. I'm, so I'm going to say they were divorced when I was maybe three or four. Mm-hmm. And our grandparents lived right down the street from us and spent a lot of time with them as my mom was working. And we moved a lot as those years. We moved a lot. But we were in church, uh, East Hickory Baptist Church. My mother was a charter member there and is still the oldest living member of the church. She's 89, and she was part of the five or six people that started the church. Mm-hmm. So we were in church uh, every Sunday, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday. So we grew up understanding right and wrong. And then as I got older, I remember, I'm going to say it was 63, 1963, maybe. Uh, There's a big gathering at Lenore Ryan College, which is now Lenore Ryan University. And yeah. Leighton Ford had come there to speak. And I think that's Billy Graham's son-in-law, maybe. And I think Dr. Graham showed up. And I remember sitting in the parking lot with my father, my grandfather, and it was a huge crowd, and that was the first time I had ever been in a crowd that size, but I wasn't even in the football stadium. And from that point on, I really started a little bit, I guess when I was in the seventh, eighth grade, I started following Billy Graham religiously. When he would come on TV and he would talk, and you know, I'd join the church, honestly, more so because I was an athlete and they had asked me to play on the church softball team even when I was a kid because, you know, I was a pretty good player. And, I remember one night coming home and every time I knew Billy Graham was coming on, I'd go home. I don't care what I was doing. I'd get there to listen to him. And, and one night I, in front of the TV, I got down on my knees and when he offered the invitation and uh, did that and called in, got my address. They sent me those uh, scripture cards. I carried in my wallet until they just really wore out. And then a funny story to tie it together. While I was at Providence College, I'd been there six years. And my last year there, when I knew I was leaving, I'd, I'd accepted the Clemson University job. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a call from a guy from the Providence Journal. And he said, I'd like to ask you a question. 
but I don't want you to think about it. I want it to be spontaneous. And he said, I'm going to ask you this question, and I'd like to have an answer in really three seconds. He said, if you could have dinner with any two people, who would it be? And without question, I, I blurted out Billy Graham and Richard Petty. Oh, that's without awesome. thinking about it. But today I would change that. I would obviously like to be able to say Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul or some people from the Bible. But but that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. It really was. And so I had a chance right after that came out, a gentleman asked me if I'd like to meet Dr. Graham. And he was going to be up in Boston doing a fundraiser up in Boston area. And so my wife, Candy and I went up and I did have a chance to meet him. And he knew a lot about Clemson. Obviously, he knew uh, Coach Hatfield, who had been on the platform with him a few times, and he grew up, you know, he lived at basically an hour and a half from Clemson. Mm-hmm. And then later on, uh, Dale Jarrett, a uh, guy that I have a relationship with and was a NASCAR champion, uh, invited me to a race in Texas. And uh, after that race was over with his brother, Glenn, and was trying to get us out of the trackies quickly to get us out so we could get moving. And I looked around by the haulers, and I saw Richard Petty. And I said to Glenn, I said, I've got to meet the king, you know, the, yeah. the king. Yeah. So I ran over to him and said, introduced myself. And he said, I know who you are. I've watched you coach. And I told him how much I grew up and admiring him and seeing him. And, uh, and I told him the story I told you about saying, I'd like to have you know lunch with he and Billy Graham. And he went, that's quite a wide spectrum. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I did to answer your question. I grew up with a background of no one who Jesus Christ was, but to the extent, the depth that I thought I did, I wasn't even anywhere close. You know, I was a surface Christian at at Mm -hmm. best. Uh, I knew the, uh, again, I give my grandparents, my mom credit for, they taught us right and wrong, but yet I also know now that that's the Holy Spirit within us too. We know that. And once I got to college, I stayed what I felt was strong in my faith, but I was not really. I was a carnal Christian at best. And then uh, over the last 10, 12 years, I'd like to think that God's taken me deeper. It's truly understanding what it means to be a Christ follower. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. I love the part of your story where you describe how your kids help pull you back in a relationship with God and challenging you to be a spiritual leader. Can you spend a little bit of time on that? Yeah, what I would say, again, coming through high school and college, I think that anyone that knew me would say that I was a, a good person. I'd probably say to you that I lived a quote unquote, fairly clean life, even though looking back now, I was, you know, a sinner. I mean, I can't say it any other way. You know, I was shallow. I was shallow in my relationship with God. I didn't have the depth of a prayer life that I needed. And then once I got into coaching, you know, and again, Candy uh, has been with me every step of the way. And I got on the fast track, you know, where I wanted to be a young head coach. and I wanted to be a head coach, and, you know, I became a head coach at 31, and at that time, one of the youngest head coaches in the country, and after one year coaching at George Mason University as a head coach, I had the opportunity to go to Providence and coach in the Big East when the Big East was really rolling, and yeah. as it is now, I mean, it's a great basketball conference, and I became worldly. I became fleshly. I became uh, caught up in this world and thinking about, you know, fame, uh, fortune. It was about me. Uh, you name it. Uh, I got caught up in a world and worked living very worldly. And even though I would still, you'd see me, I think you'd say, Hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. My wife has done a phenomenal job forever. 
having our kids in church, you know, so I would be the guy that would be going to church with my family and my kids and certainly listening to pastors preach and knowing that the one question I hadn't asked that I should have asked many, many, many years ago was God put it clear in my mind. The sin is keeping me from having a relationship I really need to have with you. And I would often, you know, go to church and know that I asked for forgiveness, but not really understanding what true repentance was. You know, uh, knowing full well when I asked for forgiveness that I would turn right around and go back into what I was doing. So I really wasn't asking for repentance the way I needed to be. And uh, one day I came in and I'd gotten into where instead of going to church, you know, my family found a beautiful church in Austin, Texas called the Austin Stone. And it was very different from anything that I had grown up with. I grew up in a Baptist church, you know, very, you know, Baptist service. And, uh, you know, now this is when the, you walk into Austin Stone, the music is more the rock style music, you know, and it was loud, you know, 2,000 to 3,000, 4,000 people there. And so I use that as an excuse. That's not who I am. That's not what I want to do. But it was really me just falling away from the faith. And again, I've never not believed in God. I've never not believed in Jesus Christ. But what I didn't do, I didn't abide in Jesus Christ. I didn't honor him. I didn't live the way I should have lived. I wasn't living like I was being a, a phony. I was being a hypocrite. I was a typical person that I think I would say, if that's Christianity, I'm not far from Christianity. And I, I wasn't living like a Christian. My, my light certainly wasn't shining for the kingdom. And I came in one day after being on the bike ride and my daughter and son, they were waiting on me. They said, Dad, we'd like to have a talk with you. And they told me, they said, you know, we love you. We appreciate your hard work to help us provide for us and all that. But right now, don't care about any of that. We care more about you where you are in your phase of life. And we think that if you died today, that you wouldn't go to heaven. And we don't think that you're treating mom the way she should be treated. We don't think you're living your life the way you need to be treated. You're, you're not showing the love and the patience. You're not as gentle as you need to be. And what they basically did was pretty much describe the fruit of the spirit. You know, that, uh, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah. I wasn't showing much of that. And I got angry with them. I got angry because I felt like, why are they calling me out? And I certainly didn't show the self-control at that time because I walked out, got in my car, took off. And for about, oh, probably a minute thought, who do they think they are? And then all at once I was just stopped in my tracks. And I knew everything they said was the absolute truth. I knew it was the absolute truth. I'd been living a lie. I had been, a, again, hypocrite, phony. You put any word you want to put on it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't real. Uh, I wasn't. And so uh, thanks to them and the grace of God, strictly the grace of God, that uh, one thing I've learned is that God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Because I truly believe that when I knelt down in front of that TV with Billy Graham, that I felt the presence of God come into my life. And I know I went through a period there where God was my treasure. I know that he was, uh, I felt him. I knew, I just felt the Holy Spirit living in me at that point in time. But then as I got going in the world of athletics, I got going into the world of coaching. I became too worldly centered and I lost my foundation. How does that realization and the interaction that you had with your kids, how did that change you 
Well, presumably as a man, but as a coach, in the way that you related to your players, for instance, what changed then? Well, I can say this to you, too. Back growing up, I would never, ever use profanity. I mean, it was forbidden in our house. You just did not use profanity, anything like that. And when I got into coaching, I was an assistant coach at Davidson for two years, George Mason for five years, Alabama for a year, and Ohio State for a year. And I can tell you, I did not use curse words. I just wouldn't do it. When I became a head coach, I actually had an assistant coach tell me, if you don't talk the language of these players, you're never going to get your message across. And at that point in time, I did start using profanity, and I'm ashamed of it. I, I, I hate it. It makes me sick to even think about how I could go that way. And I had a conversation with one of my players at the University of Texas one year, and, and his name was Damian James, a person that I loved tremendously. And he was struggling. And before a game at Oklahoma, I brought him in to speak to me right before, you know, we we're going to meet as a team before we getting ready to play there. And I said, Damien, I want to help you some way, somehow. I want to help you. And I just don't feel like I am. And he looked at me and it, this is a life changing moment for me as a coach. He said, coach, I have to apologize to you because I haven't lived up to the expectations that you have for me or for myself. And I could tell when he said that to me, I knew that I had let him down for him to even think that, he could blame himself for how he was playing. I just knew that it was a life-changing moment. I said, well, tell me this. What can I do to help you? He said, well, Coach, to be honest with you, I've never had anybody talk to me the way you talk to me at times in terms of the language. And I said, are you talking about the profanity? He said, yes. And I said, well, i tell you what, Damien, I promise you this. With the grace of God and the help of God, I'm never going to curse again. And to be honest with you, since that day, I never have. Wow. And, uh, and it changed him. And I actually went back and apologized to some players that I had previously coached because I felt like that I had not lived up to my responsibility with them, wanting to teach them the way I would like for my kids to be taught. And I apologized to them and told them that I, I was wrong. Uh, it was selfish on my part. It was me looking out for me and me alone, and I owed him an apology, and I'm glad I was able to do that with a number of different guys I've coached through the years. And so that was major because, you know what, even when I did that, it was for show. It just goes back to telling you how the world, if you're not grounded in the word every day, the world can pull you in directions that you really don't want to go. Coach, that's powerful stuff. You know, I know the guys at Stone, Matt, Kevin, and Todd, great guys that really stewarding the opportunity to – to encourage families like yours, talk to us a little bit. Man, it sounds like quite a journey that you've been on there, going back to former players, kind of apologizing, talking about some of the things you regretted. How has it changed your relationship with your kids? What does that look like today? Well, I would even, you talk about the Austin Stone, you know, I had conversations with Matt Carter, you know, both he and my wife, as we dealt with marital problems, you know, that uh, where. By the God's grace, you know, uh, again, I have the most, I can't say enough about my wife. I mean, I think she's one of the most godly people I've ever been around in my life. And for her to stay with me was, again, another grace of God. But what I would tell you, I learned from my kids, and I say this often when I go to speak, kids shouldn't be afraid to tell their parents the truth. I think that you've got to have truth tellers in your life. I think you've got to have accountability partners. I think you've got to truly have people, if they love you, and again, I would say there's a way you have to go about doing it. I don't know if it can be harsh. I, like that day when my kids set me down, I do remember that 
I thought they were lovely, loving in the way they said it. They had kind of be in a real harsh way. I'm not sure how I would have responded to that. But I think that young people need to, sometimes they see it. You know, uh, you know, God talks about the, have the faith of a child. And I think sometimes kids can help their parents by telling them the truth and saying, hey, you see something that is not right in your family. And But my kids love the Lord. I can tell you that. I have one that's a missionary in the Middle East, and I have a daughter that has lived on mission, too. I mean, she adopted two young children from Uganda, and she's had two the old-fashioned way. And and the way they have raised their family in a Christ-centered home is something I'm more proud of than anything that uh, Candy and I have done together is the way our kids are living for Jesus Christ. And so do I feel accountable to them? I really do. And I, again, I just appreciate them being able to sit me down and tell me that because at that point in time, I think they would tell you that I'm a person when someone comes at me, I normally are going to fire back. And they weren't afraid of that. They just did what they knew they had to do. So coach, that obviously puts a lot in perspective when you talk about just the way that your life has been changed and just kind of how some of those conversations just impacted you as a man. Let's shift for a little bit to the court. We'd be remiss to not talk about some of the accomplishments there, knowing that uh, one of the all-time winningest coaches in the history of the game. Talk to us for a little bit just about things on the court. When you think about big games, big wins, teams, what are some of the things at Texas, at Tennessee, that you look at, that you look back with fond memories and say, those are some of the things you're most proud of? You know, it's always the players. You know, people think that. I mean, you win games, uh, you know, you lose games, but it's the relationships that you have with your players and your coaches. I mean, I've been blessed to have tremendous coaching staffs everywhere I've been, but it always goes back to the players and the growth that you see in them. And I do think that, because of my background growing up, I believe in hard work. And I do believe that when we have a chance to coach the guys that we coach, the one thing I don't want them to have would be regrets when they leave. I don't want them to look back and say, coach, I wish you guys would have done this or do that. And it's not me. I mean, we're a staff. It's a we. It's not a me or an I. I don't want them to look back and think that we could have done more for them. I don't want them to look back and think that they weren't prepared for not only what might come next in their basketball career. I want them to understand that our culture is about honesty. It's about integrity. It's about responsibility. And those three things, if they truly can understand those three things, regardless of what culture they go into, they're going to be successful. But all the fond memories of, again, we could talk about great games, highlight games, and there's been a lot of those losses too. But still, it's the sweet part of this. And right now, what we're going through with this coronavirus, we miss our team. We miss this time here and being with our players. And uh, it'll always be about the relationships that you develop through your players. Yeah, certainly one of the special players, an accomplished standpoint, had to have been coaching Kevin Durant. I've got an 11-year-old at home and, of course, you know, a big fan of Kevin and just watching his career develop. When did you know that he wasn't just going to be good, but one of those transcendent players that – really changed the way the game was played? Well, when we had recruited him, and Russ Freeman was our coach at the time who had gone on a recruiting trip up to a Christmas tournament, I think it was up in, I think, Delaware, and he called me one night, and I think it was Russ's first year on the road. He said, Coach, what's our philosophy on offering young player scholarships? And I said, well, you know, I've never been one of those guys that want to offer seventh and eighth graders. I just think that's not – the way it should be. And Kevin was in the 10th grade and 
I told Russ, I said, well, I don't have a problem offering a high school kid a, a scholarship. And to me, high school is 10th, 11th, 12th grade, even though now people would consider it ninth grade, but my junior high was 7th, 8th, ninth grade. So I said, I don't have a problem if you want to offer a high school player. And I said, if he's that good, he's probably going to forget it anyway because if he's that good, everybody in the world is going to offer him. So Russ offered him and did, a, from that point on, a phenomenal job of recruiting Kevin through the next couple of years. And uh, when he came down to visit, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge was his host, and Kevin came down with his father, Wayne Pratt. And that was the first year that uh, juniors could actually visit in the spring. And so he came down, and we had a nice visit. LaMarcus did a nice job on the visit, and he obviously committed to us. And when he came in, We'd been in practice maybe a week, and Fran Fraschella, who had been one of my assistant coaches at Providence, and Fran has known me for a long time. We almost worked together as assistants together at George Mason. But uh, he called me one day because we had lost everybody on our team pretty much to graduation or to uh, guys leaving early for the NBA. And so we had four returning players from the team, and we signed seven guys that year, and it was one of the top two recruiting classes in the country, depending on how you want to look at it. And Kevin obviously being behind it with DJ Augustine and Damian James. But uh, Fran called me, so well, tell me about your team. I said, well, I don't know about our team right now. I really don't. But I, I said, I can tell you this. We've got the best player. And he said, what do you mean you got the best freshman? I said, no, we have the best player in college basketball. He said, that's a big statement. I said, well, I'm going to say it again. We had the best player in college basketball. And as you know, he went on to win every player of the year. Yes, he did. Award that you could get the first freshman to do that. And then he actually uh, played. I think Kevin ended up averaging 36 minutes a game. But Kevin Durant is uh, one of the, if not the hardest working player that we've ever coached. He's a tremendous teammate. It was never about him. He always wanted to get better. He wanted to be coached hard. And if people knew him, his love and passion for the game, they would probably be somewhat, uh, I don't know, they'd be surprised because when you're great, and I wish everybody had a chance to coach a guy like him, not only from his ability, but from his personality to who he is and how unselfish he is. And he really is all about winning. And uh, there's not a team that we've had since that we haven't spent time talking to that team about him and all the things that he would do with his teammates and where again it was never it's never about him and that's actually the motto of our culture we say it enon but what it stands for is not about me and no one lived up to that more so than kevin durant so coach we got a lot of people listening here that probably have gone through transitions just in their career just professionally as a business leader or, or wherever god has them you know, after you left Texas, the program has struggled a little bit, and you've had some great years there at Tennessee and some runs there. I know as believers, you know, it's hard we fight some of that temptation to look back and maybe feel torn between the gratitude of where God has you now and maybe some pride thinking that, you know, you had a lot to do with success there at Texas. How do you balance that as you look forward, but also see the program that you put a lot into there at Texas? Well, when I look back at my time in Texas, again, I can tell you from, uh, you know, the last seven, eight years where I felt like my faith had really started growing the way that, that I'm thankful for. And again, I, it's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. I really thought I would be at Texas for a long time and really as long as I wanted to. And I'd worked for one of the best, if not the very best athletic director in the country in the last odds. And when he decided to step down and things started changing there, you could tell 
that board of regents, they were getting more involved where, where they hadn't really been involved for the course of the time that I was there. But even my last year there, I was told that I was going to stay. Then I was told if I would fire some of my coaches, I could stay, but I wasn't going to do that. And so when it happened, uh, I'd been in contact. People had started calling me about the University of Tennessee job. And so I knew that that was a possibility, even though I wanted to stay at Texas, I really wanted to do that. And so when I think back to answer your question, actually, Steve Patterson told me that he wanted to do this the right way. I said, well, the only way to do it is for you to fire me. You're going to have to fire me because I'm not going to fire my assistant coaches and I'm not going to quit. And obviously the other part of that would be the contract that was in place and they were willing to work through that. But I said, no, I'm not quitting. You're going to have to fire me. And knowing that I had already had the job at Tennessee, I knew that as soon as I walked out of the press conference my last day that I would be on my way to Tennessee. But I've never looked back with any anger, to be honest with you, because I think Steve Patterson, even though I could say he was the person that fired me, I think that that was the vehicle in which God used to say that I've got some other plans for you. I want to take you somewhere else and let you dive in. So with that said, I I don't have any animosity at all to the University of Texas. I love it. I still have so many friends there and I do not pull against the University of Texas, you know, and Shaka Smart was just the person that God decided was going to be the next coach there. And I think Shaka and his staff have worked really hard. I think they really do. And I think that sometimes you go in, it takes a little bit of time to get the culture in place that you want. And and I pray that if I do, those feelings come up to where I would be pulling against someone because Shaka Smart did nothing to me. He and his staff, he did nothing to me. Uh, I, I think God is in control of all this. And so my daughter has probably had a little harder time with it, to be quite honest. But I've told her, I said, hey, I will always love the University of Texas. Uh, people there that I know that are still working there are wonderful people. And I wish them nothing but the best. And I mean that sincerely. I, I really do. And uh, I'm thankful that God brought me to Tennessee. Uh, and I think he brought me here for a reason. It's allowed my wife and I to get involved in a community, in an area where there are so many wonderful people here that are doing things to really build God's kingdom. And I'm thankful for that. So if I've had that feeling, which to be, I'm not going to lie to you, if I've had it, I will tell you this. I know for a fact that if I did, I would quickly ask God to bring that to surface and forgive me for it and repent from it and know that uh, I don't want to, and you said the temptations of wanting to be critical. I'm not going to do that because these jobs are too hard. My jobs are too hard to do. And I'm not going to ever coach somebody's team from the outside and, because I know how hard it is to coach it from the inside. So I'm not, I've never been a real opinionated person about what other people are doing. And like I said, I don't wish ill will on ever. And I never will on the University of Texas because I have 17 great years there and I have so many fond memories of people there that I love dearly. Thanks, Coach. I appreciate you sharing that. We're coming to a close here, and I've got one last question, and then we're going to just kind of ask a final question that we like to ask about where God has you in His Word in this season. But before we get to that, talk to us about Tennessee. Talk to us about the culture there. I've heard, you know, you walk into this in your journey, eyes wide open of just the excitement of what's there. There's some roots there, so connection, but also just how your faith can really be more intentional there in your work. What what excites you about the future there at Tennessee? Well, we have great leadership here. We have a tremendous president in uh, the UT system, Randy Boyd, who I think has brought so much stability and 
It's been great. I mean, I think when you think of the entire University of Tennessee system, but then on campus, Dante Plowman, our new chancellor, is one of the greatest leaders I've ever been around. She has a demeanor about her that I think she could lead anybody. I mean, she is tremendous. And then it comes down to my boss and Philip Former, who's a coach and who uh, I'm not sure anybody loves the University of Tennessee more than him. He played here coached here, uh, got fired here, has a street named after him on campus. Uh, felt like probably that he was alienated where he couldn't come back on campus, even though there's a street named after him. And now that he's back, he has done an unbelievable job of bringing a sense of warmth, stability uh, to the athletic department. And going forward with our university, I, I can't imagine uh, the coming years is not going to be great. And not just for our athletic program, but for our entire university. And with that said, being able to get involved in a city like Knoxville, having a chance to meet some wonderful people that truly, uh, they love the state of Tennessee. They love Knoxville and watching men who are at the highest level of their profession, who have been very successful, who I've watched give back uh, a Jim Haslam, a Bill Sampson, uh, men that, I mean, I could never thank God enough for bringing those guys into my life along with there's other people. I could name many, many people, but those two guys have been the way they have given so much of not just their money to make our state and our city a better place, but it's their heart and the way they give it to people. They love people. They want to see wonderful things being done. And I'm just grateful to be a part of it. And uh, I want to see our, our city be special. I want to see our university be special. I want people to look at it as almost like a model. Like, man, there's something going on there that we need to check into it. And I want them to find out it's going to be about the people. And as I mentioned, we've got great leadership, but it's going to be the people that we can just continue to grow, learn, help each other. And uh, we all have some differences, but yeah, let's set them aside and work for the betterment of our university and our community. And now I feel fortunate to be here to be a part of that, a small part of it. Coach, I'm grateful for the time that you've spent with us here. We're going to come to a wrap just kind of with this last close. We like to point back to the scripture and just say, where does God have you in his word this season? What is he bringing to light for you that you might share with our listeners? Well, I would made up my mind this year that I really wanted to go slow on a slow walk through the Bible, starting at Genesis and really try to understand the Old Testament more than I ever had before. I obviously have loved being in the New Testament and you know, the Gospels and Roman and really the New Testament. And so as I started this year and working through Genesis, and I really have spent a lot of time lately in Exodus, and I've enjoyed it maybe as much as any time I've ever been in the Word. And where God has me with this is understanding the mistakes that were made back then by the Israelites. And but a story that comes to mind where it reminds me of myself too, when I think about Moses going up on Mount Sinai and he's up there with God and he had put Aaron in charge. And he told Aaron, now I'm going to be gone and you do this. And while he was up there, you know, God was ready to throw down the thunder on them for what they were doing down below, all the craziness that was going on. And Moses asked him not to do that. And so when Moses comes down the mountain, uh, he's got the Ten Commandments, and he's so frustrated, he hears the music, he sees the dance, and he sees basically the orgies that are going on. And he throws down the tablets where Aaron had collected everybody's earrings and gold and built this golden calf. 
And what I found interesting about that is here Aaron, Moses was up there, went away from everything God had started teaching and communicating with them about. And he went back to his old habits of worshiping the idols and the gods that they did in Egypt. But yet when it came time to build the tabernacle, God through Moses chose Aaron to be the first high priest. And so it reminded me of what Aaron did, you know, when things weren't going well and I drifted from God, I can go back to the things that you think make you happy, which they really don't because there's a void in our heart that will always be there that only God can fill. I would encourage people to really get into the book of Mark because I think Mark does a great job with his chronicle. The way he chronicles the day takes you through almost every day and our, what leads up to, you know, what really in reality, we're the ones that hung Jesus Christ to the cross. I'm responsible for those nails being driven into him from the sin that I've committed. And I think again, through his amazing grace, the blood that he shed that we could be joined again with him. And I'd like to think that, uh, through the story with Aaron, God's going to meet us when we probably least expect it. And uh, there's people out there that I'm sure that are listening that they might know the Lord, they might not. And I would, again, like my prayer would be that God will open up hearts and eyes and ears that people, when I was a young kid, when I was walking, barely sticking my toes in the water, that he will take them deeper into a relationship with him. I do think we have a dark world that we live in and we have to let our light shine and just understand in any dark room that any light is a bright light. And uh, I do know that this time of year, I've had more people with what's going on in our world right now text me scripture that had never done it before. And so I think where God has me is where I think a lot of people are right now is really having a more powerful, fervent prayer life, spending more time alone with him more time alone trying to him really, I think, teaching me that there's a depth that I can get to, that I need to get to. And the only way I'm going to do that is by getting lost in the word and spending more time alone with him and his word. And that would be my encouragement for, for everyone else too right now to step back, refocus. And what I've realized, uh, there's things that I don't need that I thought I needed. There's things that I need and what I need more is, is really more quality time with the Lord. Coach, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for the way that you just shared the power of your story of what God's been doing with you. So we're grateful that you would take the time with us. We're excited about what is uh, lies ahead there at Tennessee and what God's doing there and look forward to seeing the rest of that story. So thank you for spending time with us. Thank you indeed. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you guys. As we finish each episode, we like to spotlight a ministry at the intersection of faith and sports. That's what we do here at FDA. Well, there's Fellowship of Christian Athletes, or FCA. FCA has thousands of chapters that help coaches and athletes on every level, from youth and junior high all the way up to the professional ranks. They're there to help equip, encourage, and use the platform of sports to share the gospel. Learn more about them at fca.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey. 
one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 